Colonies, colonial, colonized. These are words we all remember reading in our U.S. history textbooks, but the truth of what those words actually mean is all too often ignored. This week, I'm joined by Joe Lumen, a Colombian pastor whose work is centered around reclaiming and decolonizing faith. Listen in as Joe shares why faith must be decolonized in order to influence our politics ethically. I'm your host, Joy Dertinger, and this is 99 Lead Balloons. Episode 5, Decolonized, Faith and Politics, Part 1. Joe, thank you so much for being here and for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and to get to know you a little bit better, too. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I think that having conversations with people that come from different corners of the world is always just good for mm -hmm. all of us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so, too. And um, it's something that I think a lot of times at least in my experience, has been kind of nerve-wracking and it can be difficult um, to think about, like, well, how do I have this conversation in a way that is appropriate? Um, and in the past, I've kind of let that get in my way and sort of prevent me from having those conversations. So I don't think that it's worth it to to shy away from those conversations anymore. Yeah. 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 So all that being said, I would love it if you would just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I was, I am a Colombian born and raised uh, woman. I, um, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and I was there until I was 25 years, or 24, 25, in between those two, I was moving. Mm -hmm. um, I visited the U.S. though a lot growing up. So my dad was working here. He started working here when I was 14 years old in Florida and Nevada. So most of the time in Florida though. So I would, you know, visit the US, mm -hmm. but I never lived here. So spending three months of the summer with your dad in Orlando is mm -hmm. definitely not the same as moving without your dad. Um, you know, when you've never lived alone, you've never lived away from family. Yeah. Um, it was, it was very different. So the, while the American culture wasn't completely foreign to me um living in it was very foreign to me mm. and so i i came here for to study um to get my master's degree and to do an internship at a church mm -hmm. and in that process ended up meeting a lot of people that were what i thought at the time doing things that were so exciting and good for me they wanted to start a church you know urban setting in San Diego and I wanted to be a part of it, help the community, uh, really side with the marginalized. Uh, and I was all, all of that sounded like exactly what I wanted to do. So I wanted to be here for a little bit, learned, uh, be a part of that. And, and then I wanted to ba go back home. But mm. in that process, I also met my now husband. And so I married him. We, we became pastors of the church. I graduated from school. Um, and, you know, it's been 14 years now. So I've been in this country for 14 years. And I don't, wow. uh, people tell me all the time, like, why don't you leave if you hate it? I don't hate the U.S. I criticize its politics and I criticize, uh, you know, things about the government, yeah. which I think each citizen should. And I would do, I do it in Colombia too. Like, 
Yeah. I criticize the Colombian government all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as is appropriate for citizens to do. Yeah. Um, but part of my heart lives here in San Diego and part of my heart is in Colombia. All my children were born here. I have four kids mm-hmm. and all of them were born here. I've created great memories in this city. Um, you know, so I, 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 I love a lot of things about where I live and a lot of, I love a lot of things about this country and a lot of things that I've learned here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm critical of it as we should. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. I'm concerned about those who aren't actually. Uh huh. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's something that is really interesting about U.S. politics. And I grew up being taught like that it was, it was appropriate to criticize the government if it was in line with, uh, if, if what I was criticizing it for was out of line with what the church taught. Right. So that was the only kind of government criticism that was acceptable. Um, and I thought that was really interesting as I got older and I moved away and began kind of starting to live life on my own and realizing that those policies that were considered acceptable in the church or were considered good in the church were not actually helpful to me and my family and they were not helpful to a lot of other families that I knew as well. Right. Yeah. It's been interesting for me as an immigrant to watch the church have these conversations about immigration or or have these conversations about, you know, look at me and say, but you did it right. Mm. As though I should be proud of that or I should be happy that they are tapping me on the back. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, you know, like that's not, I condemn the way in which we treat immigrants in this country and in many other countries, the way in which immigration is uh, exists right now. Um, but it's really funny because I'm, I'm one of the good ones, you know, mm-hmm. not when they look at me first and when they talk to me at first, but once they realize that I have a higher education because education is so revered in all of these you know, Western civilization that we've created. Um, so I am, oh, oh, you're educated. So, oh, you speak English so well. Oh, all of these things. So I am acceptable. Mm. Um, and in the meantime, there are all of these immigrants that quite literally make sure that you have food in your table uh, that you would not deem acceptable. And they are treated poorly. And should we not fight for them? Mm. And so it's been interesting for me as an immigrant to hear, and people want to use me as this token of, but you agree with us, right? Because you did it right. You wouldn't want anybody to not do it right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, nope, no thanks. Do not use me as a token, please. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I, there's so much of that to unpack. Uh, your experiences, um, like you said, with the church, especially being like, well, uh, this is, you did it right. And so this is the way that everyone else should do it. And having that expectation of you to agree. Um, I wonder if you would share a little bit about um, what it's like, you know, having those experiences in the U.S. Um, when it comes to your race, your cultural identity, gender, all of those e- kinds of experiences. Yeah. Um, so when I first moved to the U.S. and I started going to church and I started working at a church, um, I, I wasn't only an intern, I was also working. So I was both staff and an intern. Okay. And the expectation was for me to drop all of the cultural identities that I was bringing with me from Colombia. Mm-hmm. And the expectation was they were wrong. You know, like the way that they do things there is just not right. And th- that was never said overtly, mm-hmm. uh, but it was said plenty to me. 
So I was asked to change the way in which I interact with people. So we we kiss when we say when we greet one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember the first time I kissed someone on the cheek to greet them, and their absolute horror. Like they didn't react with surprise, which I would have been okay with. They reacted with horror, like mm-hmm. I had done something horrific, and I, you know, and then I had a talking, and I was I had to sit down with the pastor and his wife and had this mm. conversation about how my ways were flirtatious. So it was misinterpreted as flirtatious, but they never had a conversation with me about my cultural upbringing and how we literally kiss everyone in Colombia. Everybody kisses everybody. We hug and we kiss and we touch a lot. And touching wasn't okay. Hugging wasn't okay. And so there were all of these um, cultural expectations that were imposed on me without a conversation. Um, I, I was... I, there is a, a Cuban restaurant. This was in Las Vegas at first. And so there is this restaurant in Las Vegas and it's a Cuban restaurant. I, I love Cuban food. Mm. I think Cuban food is incredible. Um, and it should be a worldwide treasure. But <laughs> so I I would, I would used to go to this Cuban restaurant because a lot of the food reminds me of Colombian food too. Mm. And they, on Friday nights and Saturday nights, they would play salsa music and you could dance. Mm-hmm. So people would stand up and dance around the tables. Like it was not a club or anything like children were around because that's our culture. We dance and children are always around when you're dancing. Like there was nothing, there is no sexual innuendos, you know, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, me and along like with a whole bunch of other interns, we went to eat on a Friday night and then we danced and there was another Colombian um, intern there and I knew him from before and he was a really good dancer and I'm a really good dancer and so we danced and then we were dancing with the other interns, just showing them how to do, how to salsa dance. Mm-hmm. The amount of trouble we got into, you would have thought we committed a horrific crime. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, like it was absolutely unacceptable. And there was this big conversation and we were all pulled into a room and it became a huge ordeal. And I was like, I don't get it. Mm. Um, so all in all, interns were now forbidden from dancing. And then there was all of this conversation about how dancing is always sexual and how dancing is not appropriate and you shouldn't dance. And, um, and I remember because I was so indoctrinated and because I had, you know, I was coming here to learn how to be a better Christian because America is where you learn supposedly. Mm. I remember not dancing and I, I would dance at home when I cooked and I would put my music and, but I didn't dance for years. Wow. And I didn't do a lot of things for many years. I changed the way in which I dressed and I changed the way in which I interacted with others. And um, I, I, they told me I couldn't make friends with men. I had both men and women friends my whole life, mm-hmm. uh, but I wasn't allowed to anymore. And so, but all of this happened without understanding my cultural background, mm-hmm. without understanding that dancing is simply a part of my a bringing we danced our whole lives and it brought me joy right um and when i you know woke up to all of these i remember thinking how terrible it was that i had been stolen so many years of experiencing my an expression of my own culture and suppressing really my identity mm-hmm. for the comfort of christians you know and, yeah. and that's on the cultural side i mean I was told my accent was unacceptable that I needed to work on my accent because people couldn't understand because it it would confuse them because I need so I took actual classes to work on my accent and minimize mm. my accent. Wow. Um, I 
uh, obviously the conversation on gender and sexuality was you are heterosexual and that's that. And so I was never even allowed to, and this was both in Colombia and here, Yeah. but I was never even allowed to consider what was happening inside of me. If I, even if I was heterosexual or not. Mm -hmm. And I remember having, I remember liking, uh, I, I spent this summer with a friend of mine. She was a girl. And I remember developing feelings for her and I told my mom and my mom with the same indoctrination from you know colonization and all of that shit she had she handled it the best she could and she just said well that's admiration Mm. you admire her that's Mm. admiration but that's not romantic um it it has nothing romantic behind it but I remember thinking it feels really romantic it feels (laughs) just the same way that I feel about boys so but because my mom said, no, that's admiration. And it, it seemed like it was like, this is not something that we're going to talk about. It's admiration and that's final. Mm-hmm. And then the church doubled down on that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I didn't explore how I felt about any of that. Even though this kept happening in my life, um, I kept feeling admiration <laughs> for women. <laughs> um, I, I kept seeing like, oh, that's just, I just think I'm just, I, I just admire them. Mm. Uh and I resented that to this day. I resent waking up at 30, you know, three, 35 years old thinking I was never even allowed to consider whether I wasn't heterosexual. It was assumed yeah. that I was, and there was no questioning of it. Mm. And so all of my identity was thrown into a box, demanded that I fit into it, and it was cemented. I I, I like to, I like the way that I see it in my head is I would... We are all thrown into these boxes. Then cement is thrown into it so that we fit perfectly into them. Mm-hmm. And we're not allowed to move. And for the rest of our lives, we are chiseling away the cement to be able to come back to ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So so that's what, that's what it was for me. And then moving to the U.S. and working at these churches that were really quite conservative um, poured more cement over my identities. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. I think that that is, it's a wonderful visual um, to describe, I think, the way that a lot of us feel, a lot of people. And yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, When you were, when you first moved to the U.S. and you were working in the church and things like that, was, were politics part of the conversation? Was it something that you did or did not talk about? You mentioned earlier that politics were kind of a, that's a no-no topic. Yeah, it was interesting because politics were only mentioned when we had to vote for something we were against. Yeah. Um, that was it. Like, hey, they want to pass gay marriage. You have to vote no. Yeah. <laughs> and there was it was not a conversation. There were commands. Mm-hmm. We vote no on this. Oh, hey, they want to do this for children in schools. You have to vote no. Mm. Um, so there was never a conversation of politics in a healthy way. In like, what do we think about this? Can we... Can we wrestle with this together? Which I think is the healthy way to approach any conversation on politics. Can we wrestle with this together? Because it's healthy to wrestle. Because I understand people can be, have been conditioned to see certain things in a certain way. And they have not been able to see the other or get enough proximity to the other to understand different political stances or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So... The, the conversations were never invited. Um, the conversations were never welcomed either. Mm. There was a bottom line. The bottom line is if you're a Christian, you vote against gay marriage, 
If you're a Christian, you vote against abortion. If you're a Christian, you vote against anything that we may not feel comfortable with. Um, <laughs> and then at the same time, you vote for things that may make others uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so if, you know, if we want like, hey, we want Bibles in churches or in schools and we want people to recite the Hail Mary every morning or whatever it is, they'd be like, yeah, we should absolutely vote for that. We have consideration of how this would affect anybody of a different faith because it's good for us. So whatever was good for what we called us, we vote for whatever is bad for what we call us and whoever decided is good and bad, we vote against. But there was never an invitation to see the other. There was never an invitation to consider the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a little different from my upbringing too. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps because my family is so large. We, so the last time we got together, my grandparents were celebrating a big anniversary and they decided to take us all on a vacation, kind of. Mm -hmm. So it was 49 people that got on an airplane <laughs> <laughs> and flew together to this hotel. Wow. Um, and we spent a week together and it was marvelous and hysterical. Yeah. And we, we had this uh, celebration where one of, like, one of the things they wanted to do was have a, a service, kind of like a Catholic kind of service. My, my grandma is a Catholic, not really. Like she believes in Mother Earth and also loves the Virgin Mary. So whatever. But mm -hmm. she wanted to honor God in a way. So we had this service and we all dressed in white. And so it was these 50 people walking through this small little town in Colombia <laughs> to this small little church. And the this the pre priest, I guess it was, mm -hmm. the priests uh, talked about like just the beauty of having a legacy of family. So it wasn't mm. like very religious or anything like that. But because we are so many in my family and because we um, come from very different, like all of us have different beliefs and we respect each other's beliefs, we have conversations. So I remember sitting in my grandparents' kitchen, disagreeing with my uncles and my cousins and my aunts, and and we vote completely opposite from one another. And mm -hmm. I'm not talking about just like the nuclear, the smaller, what they call here, nuclear family, mm -hmm. mom, dad, and kids. Like we would disagree with my mom, but beyond that, with my grandparents and with my uncles. And there was always room for these disagreements and these conversations. Mm -hmm. There was no room for that when I moved here. Hmm. Um, to belong, you had to agree. Yeah. And and that agreement hinging on your belonging makes you afraid to even think critically. Oh, yeah. Because you start thinking critically, then you start having questions. And if you have questions, then you may not agree. And if they are going to remove your belonging from that, then because of trauma and because you, we all are going to want safety, you know, depending on how healed we are, we're all going to choose safety of belonging over safety of belonging to self, mm -hmm. um, then we are going to say, okay, well, I won't think about this and I will trust you. And mm -hmm. it, it hinders your ability to think critically, which got me in a lot of trouble at staff meetings oh. because I raised, I was raised to question yeah, and to have conversations and to tell my grandpa, no, what? Mm. So looking at a pastor and saying, no, what wasn't that, wasn't crazy to me um mm -hmm. i was told it was and it was inappropriate mm -hmm. so you know this pushback all the time the you have to agree to i remember being told um unity means that you may disagree in private but once you walk out we all agree in public i'm like so you're asking me to be a hypocrite basically mm. like 
you're asking me to say yes to what you said, even mm -hmm. if I disagree, for the sake of looking united, mm -hmm. that's not unity, that's hypocrisy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that there is this really huge narrative in churches and ev evangelical circles, especially to, yeah, have this appearance of unity, regardless of how it affects anyone internally, regardless of, um, you know, experiences that you may have had that speak to the contrary of that unified stance. Uh, all of those things they have to be pushed off to the side so that you can maintain that appearance of unity because it's been really strange because it somehow is tied to like proselytizing and evangelizing yes. um that if you disagree within a church or within a staff or anything like that then you can't possibly like quote unquote reach other people for god that that's right. off the table it's impossible now right because it has to look like everything is harmonious Mm -hmm. all the time there is no conflict because see that's the promise yeah. that's the fake promise that they uh -huh. are giving everybody if you come to god the god that we're selling you your life will be so harmonious there's going to be peace everything is going to be perfect and pristine and it's bullshit yeah i'm not <laughs> cursing your in your podcast but no you're fine <laughs> okay good because yeah. it is yeah it's 100 there is no such thing being alive means having conflict yeah being alive means disagreeing and welcoming that disagreement and being able to have critical conversations and being able to walk away and say we absolutely disagree here but so long as your humanity is not being denied in this conversation we can we can walk away and be cool like it's cool mm -hmm. you don't have to agree with me here now if my humanity is being challenged yeah. then we have to have a conversation until you understand that you're denying me something that i have a right to mm -hmm. but but that in that fake pristine harmonious perfect image that they continue to sell us is the is how the church has married white supremacy because that's what white supremacy sells mm -hmm. everything is perfect only if you align to this perfect way of being because white supremacy says we are supreme we do things better our families function better we are better at everything well they, the only way to prove that is to be better but that doesn't exist right you know so you see families pretending that they have no conflict, smiling big as soon as they walk into a church, even though in the car they were screaming at each other, <laughs> not being able to say like, right now, I want to punch him in the face. Mm -hmm. Like, that's all I want to do. Yep. No, that is never allowed. And children have to smile. And you are demanding that children look good for you. Mm -hmm. So it affects your parenting, your relationship with your kids, because you're teaching your kids that what matters most is what people think about our family than what your actual children are feeling. Mm -hmm. And you're harming them in terrible, horrible, horrible, traumatic ways. Yeah. Because that's that's the, what I what I heard also growing up, and what I hear still today in many places is what my, what we look like matters more than who we are and what we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So what does that say about me? I don't matter at all. Yeah. If what matters is what they think about me. Mm -hmm. It's all nonsense and bullshit because it doesn't. Right. What matters is that we are aligned with ourselves mm -hmm. that we are not betraying ourselves yeah and if that means that today i say i'm having the worst day then it means i'm having the worst day that doesn't diminish the person that i am whatsoever or my relationship with divinity whatever that is mm -hmm. that's the other thing they tell you well if you're having a bad day it's because you're not in in you know you didn't have a good time with god this morning right? maybe what you need to do is pray more no i don't need to pray more i don't <laughs> need to read more 
I'm having a bad day. Right. <laughs> like it's normal. I am a human being with yeah. human emotions that lives with other. I live with six people. Mm. I live with six human beings. You know, two of them are under four. Yeah. I have bad days and yeah. I'm allowed to. Yeah. That Absolutely. doesn't mean that I am a bad person or that I am unhealed or that I haven't done enough work, that I don't have a relationship with divinity. Mm-hmm. No, and I don't allow for any of that to affect me anymore, but it did for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it did yeah. with the, the, the pretending that my family was different, the pretending that my husband and I were okay when I wanted to leave him. Mm. Uh, the pretending that that I didn't, I wasn't dealing with suicidal ideation, that I felt like it was just better to die because then I would be a martyr by the way I like all of these went through my head oh yeah like if I die then the church will be like oh my gosh she was so great we loved her mm. and instead I I was like the, the alternative is to fight and tell them what the, they are the way that they speak that the way that they are pushing theology is harmful and I don't want to do that because it's going to cost me everything and it did mm-hmm. I obviously didn't die instead I did the alternative mm-hmm. and uh and it did. It cost me every relationship because there is no room for messy ever. Mm. So there is no room for humanity mm-hmm. either. Yeah. Yeah. It's all very like homogenized and in the church. It, it's. I think it's really fascinating when there are pastors who talk about we have such a diverse church. When you come to our church, you're going to see and then they list people's professions. I think that's right. so strange. Like, well, we have plumbers and we have teachers and we have doctors and we have all of it <laughs> and we're so diverse. And I think, well, but why is it so diverse to have people of different professions? Because that's like, if you all think the same, then you're all the same. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. There's no they, diversity they, there. Even when they list, um, you know, ethnicities or races, mm-hmm. I'm like, sh- sure, you have a whole bunch of people from different ethnicities still the majority continues to be one and the majority of thought is what you tell them to think. So it doesn't matter that somebody came from Egypt or Argentina. Mm -hmm. They're demanded to believe what you believe and behave like you ask them to behave. Therefore, this is homogeneous. It doesn't matter where people came from. You are demanding everybody behave the same way. There is no um, diversity here at all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it... Again, it, it all comes from like that, that thought pattern and that thought life, which, you know, it's really interesting how much the church uh, ostracizes politics, like we were talking about before. It's like, and you can only vote against things. And while most churches will never come out and say, um, at least not in my experience, you may have had a different experience. In my experience, no church is going to come out and say, uh, we support this particular candidate or we support this particular party. They're just going to lead you down a trail of we vote for or against these things. And then in the end, it's so scripted that you really only have one party and one candidate to yep, choose from. Absolutely. The, I, the last time I was in a church uh, building, Donald Trump was running for office Mm. and the pastor said, I can't tell you who to vote for. What I can tell you though, is that as Christians, we have a responsibility to vote for the candidate that is pro-life. I got up angry Mm -hmm. with like the amount of anger that I was holding inside of me when he said that couldn't even be measured. 
Mm. I got up, right? I was sitting in the middle. I didn't care. In the middle toward the front, I got up in the middle. I made everybody move and I left the room. Mm. I just left the room. Because mm-hmm. I, I was like, what do you mean you can't tell people who to vote for? You literally just, you just did. did. Yeah. You just did. But you're yeah. trying to save face. Like at least say it with, with your chest. If you yeah. have something to say, say it with your chest. Mm-hmm. But if you cannot say it with your chest, but you're going to be coy, then what is this is just manipulation. And no, no, there are more things at stake here than being pro-life. There are, yeah. Today, they continue to say the same thing. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, and and like, it's all are, nominal, right? Like even even pro-life. Nominal. That's It's nominal pro-life. It's, it's not really pro-full life. Um, no, no, no. No. They are just anti-abortion. That's it. Yeah. That's what they are talking about because they aren't even clear about it. And then when you have the conversation that, hey, I want to lower abortion rates. I do in, mm-hmm. in my life. I want to lower abortion rates. Yeah. And you tell them these are actual things that can lower abortion rates. One of them is not making abortion illegal. Mm-hmm. They're like, nope, abortion has to be legal. Period. Like they can't even have the conversation. Yeah. And looking at the history of how politics have been manipulated so that Christians vote for one thing or the other abortion is just a new thing that they are peddling before it was segregation yeah um so they are just this is what i believe wholeheartedly and i've i've read enough to know this is not just what i believe that makes it sound like i came up with this this is what i believe because i've been reading enough Mm -hmm. um christians are demanded to stop thinking Mm. so they are groomed from birth really to not think but to um, yield their critical thinking skills to an authority figure. Yeah. And in that sense, they become the most easy group of people to persuade one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And they, and there are parties in the United States, they, there are politicians in the United States from both parties, but it's more from the Republican Party that take full advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And so they say, well, we are the party for you know, the Christian views. Mm. That's not true. There are Christian views from both parties and there are very unchristian views from both parties because Christian views means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like it just means nothing. Yeah. It's just something that you say, or they say, well, we believe in biblical views. Okay, so you want to go back to stoning people. Is that what mm. you mean? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it means nothing. But they are, it's so easy to manipulate people that have been groomed to yield their critical thinking skills that they know they can say one to four things and they have them. Yeah. That's it. They have them. Yeah. That's why it's, it's, it's so important to me to invite people to have, to think further. You know, I tell them, Mm -hmm. I do not care. I don't care where you land. I don't, I don't, I don't care. Even if where you land dehumanizes me, I don't care. Mm -hmm. What I ask you is, did you land here because you actually studied, did the research and engaged with this information? Or did you land here because you were told to? Because most of the people, when they engage with the information clearly, never land in a place where they dehumanize anybody. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that, I think that that's so wild. I mean, I went to a Bible college. I don't have my master's, but I have uh, my bachelor's and I have it in uh, linguistics and biblical languages. And when you were in grad school, that was at a Christian college, right? Yeah, Point Loma Nazarene. Okay. So in grad school, I'm wondering if you had a similar experience to the experience that I had, which was we're going to give you the tools to study 
the Bible or to study this ancient script, but we're expecting you not to use them. We're going to like say that we're teaching you how to study the Bible, but really what we're doing is we're handing you a book that we want you to memorize a certain way. And this is the only way it can be interpreted. And, and this is the right way, period. Well, that wasn't my experience at Point Loma. Exactly. Um, Point Loma has, because they've been struggling themselves with a lot of different theological stances, mm. including where they land with women and LGBTQ people, okay. um, they welcome a lot of conversations. Mm. And so, however, I <laughs> there is a caveat to all of that. <laughs> however, while they welcome the conversations, most of the people inside are have their mind made up. Mm. So the conversations are three people that are asking questions and 27 that are like, mm, no, you're wrong, period. Mm, yeah. Uh, and especially considering I was in most of my classes, I was one of two women. Mm-hmm. Um, so every one of them were men. I was one of two or three co- people of color. Everyone was white. Mm. So the experiences were filtered because your experiences are filtered to your, to your identities, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting, but I did have a few teachers. Like there was one teacher, which... This story is heartbreaking, but I have this one teacher and he was a huge social justice. You know, he believed that if the gospel does not lead you to social justice, then you're reading the whole thing wrong. Mm-hmm. And he was committed to that. So he led a church. He was a teacher at Point Loma and he also led a church in City Heights here in San Diego. City Heights is one of the areas where a lot of people with low income families live. Mm. So, um, so he has this church there that is big and his church houses like undocumented immigrants Mm -hmm. because ICE cannot go in and take him out. That's illegal. Right. So he'll house them. Yeah. He'll just house them there and he would feed them and he would do all of these different things in there and just, and he was like, that's being the church. I don't even care what happens on Sunday. Generally don't care. Mm. And, uh, and he kept saying like, I don't understand why the church is centered on the Sunday service. So the challenge was always to tell us like, how are you going to decenter Sunday the service, how are you going to decenter your voice? Because mm-hmm. centering Sunday is centering the voice of the pastor. How are you going to decenter the voice of the pastor and center the people? How are, how are you doing that? So the challenge was always there. And I love the conversations that I was having with him. And then it came out that he was um, sexually abusing some people, which is mm. heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but those conversations were very transformative for me. Because while he was saying those things, I had to go to staff the next day and see Sunday centered and see the pastor centered and see the one narrative centered. And I had another teacher. She was a, a woman and she was my absolute favorite calling. Like we would spend hours on one piece of Mark. She was very obsessed with Mark, mm. one piece of Mark and be like, I don't want us all to get to the same conclusion. I want us all to really look at this, like really look at it. What does it mean? What does it mean for our faith practice? What does it mean for the expression of faith that we have? Mm-hmm. Um, and what does it mean for the changes that happen? Because if your engagement with your faith, whether it be the Bible or whatever it is, meditation or journaling or whatever, if your engagement with your faith is not transforming the way in which you present yourself in the world, then what is it? Mm. You know, it's just what? like. Yeah just tradition, just repeating patterns for the sake of repeating patterns, for the sake of not being ostracized or put aside. Mm-hmm. Um, so she kept saying, how is this transforming? And every time we met with her, she'd be like, how, how are, have you been transformed? Hmm. What has changed? 
And so she made us read emergent theology books and she made us read, um, even she made us engage with some of Rob Bell's most, you know, the things that he was saying at the time back then that were a little bit like he was about to get kicked out. Yeah. Um, And she was like, how do you feel? And she would never take a side, but Mm. push the conversations, you know, be like, how do you feel about this? And she, we, I, I don't think that I would have been able to deconstruct like this has started my deconstruction. Mm. They are egalitarians too. My church wasn't, it was a complementarian church. Mm. So I had to grapple with the fact that I am in a complementarian church studying about egalitarian theology mm. and realizing that I align with egalitarian theology and how am I going to do that? Like, how am I going to go to work and tell them? And so having all these conversations at work, being shut down at work, but then being free to have them at school. And my papers were not... You know, they didn't align with the theology that I had been taught in church, mm-hmm. but I was getting A's and being told, like, thank you for thinking critically about these. Mm. So it was really helpful for me. And the the invitation, it changed my husband, too. He was attending all the classes with me, but he wasn't getting the master's because he didn't like writing papers. He still wasn't. <laughs> uh, but he attended all the classes. That was allowed. And mm-hmm. so he attended all the classes. And there was a teacher that would talk about silence and how in this modern idea of the mega church we've shoved aside the um the introverts we've Mm -hmm. shoved aside those who love silence who need it Mm -hmm. we've shoved aside the fact that we all actually need it yeah that we we are thrown with all of these excessive visuals and sounds and we are moving from excitement to excitement not being able to stop long enough to be able to breathe and to ponder and to really take a minute to say where am I how is how am I doing Mm -hmm. what what is even happening Mm -hmm. because it's like you're being moved in this river that is just wild and you are like okay go you go here and you do that and then the next exciting thing is tomorrow and Mm. But nobody stops long enough to realize we are all a whole bunch of unhealthy people bleeding and making others bleed. Yeah. So even having those conversations in school was so deeply healthy. And so we started uh, in my family with me and with Caleb, we started incorporating a lot of these things into our lives and incorporating these conversations into our ministries and the things that we were over. Well, that didn't go well, but but it changed the way in which we were indoctrinated in a way. And it changed the way in which we were expressing our faith too. Mm. It was the beginning of, I mean, the person that I was when I finished, I I graduated in 2012 and the person that I am today are completely different nonetheless, but Mm. it started, you know, it was, it started there with those questions. It, it, there was a, there was room for me to ask questions that nowhere else I was allowed to ask. Mm, yeah yeah and there's so much that's that's amazing I think that that is wonderful I mean in I haven't been to grad school yet someday I would really love to but my my goal is to not go to a I don't want to go to a Christian grad school it's not it doesn't make sense for me anymore it's not where I need to be or want to be um so my college experience was uh very like scripted and very like if you, it was this idea of if you study the Bible, 
like you were saying before, it will lead you to these conclusions. And it, it, it was like the opposite of what you're describing of having, you know, and thinking critically, being encouraged to come up with different conclusions from studying something. For us, it was if you're actually studying this properly, you'll come to the same conclusion that, you know, I, the professor did. And right. it will also inform all of your politics and all right. of your uh, future education, all of your family decision making processes and all of the things that make you a sort of member of society functioning right. and all of those things. So if you're studying the Bible properly, it will give you all of the answers moving into the world to interact with every sphere, which turns out at least in the lives of my myself and my family, it doesn't appear to be true. I mean, the, the longer that people keep peddling this idea that the Bible is a blueprint for life, yeah. I don't know how many times I heard that, uh, the longer that we'll be stuck because mm -hmm. it's not a blueprint. The, the thing that, like, it was written 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. There is a lot that has happened that we are not considering in there anymore. But, but absolutely, you know, it was the same experience for me outside of school. It was the Bible's a blueprint for life. Mm -hmm. Any problem that you have, anything that you encounter, anything that happens in the world can be and should be seen through the Bible and the Bible will have an answer for it. And yeah. Like, no, that's actually bullshit. And I, I can prove it. Yes. My life wasn't, you know, yeah. I looked, I looked, the reason I ended up studying the Bible obsessively was because I was told that. Mm -hmm. And I, I did all the things that they told me I should, I was supposed to do in the Bible. I did all the things I was the, you know, straight A. I have that personality. I am a firstborn um that wanted the approval of her parents a little too much and so firstborn of divorced parents and the trauma with that means that for some of us it means that i will do all the things right mm. you know i'll follow all the rules and i'll see ex i'll excel at everything because that's where my belonging hinges mm. so i was a straight a student the first time i got a b was in college and i cried mm. and i'll tell you why in a second but you know my whole life just being like that and so i took christianity in the same way i did all the things i read the bible i woke up early i did the meditations i i had my quiet times mm -hmm. and i i did all the things and i was found ostracized alone suicidal um mm -hmm. not, i was like you told me this would work you yeah. you told me so i was like if you tell me that all the answers are in the bible then i'm gonna freaking find them yeah and i started reading it in hebrew and studying it obsessively like obsessively where I would I couldn't sleep because I needed to understand I needed to know how I ended up here mm -hmm. and turns out everything that I had been told the Bible says it doesn't say mm -hmm. and I found that in Genesis 3 so I didn't even have to go that far yeah <laughs> you know like wait you lied to me about a whole bunch of things yeah this this is up for interpretation this is allegory this is this is actually way more beautiful than you ever intended. It's just a beautiful book of people that were writing about their experiences and you made it a rule book and mm -hmm. you made it a, you made it something to beat people over the head with. And that's disgusting. Yeah. And so, yeah, but I think that what helped me too was that I, when I graduated high school, my, I said that I wanted to come and do master's commission. So I don't know if you are familiar with master's commission, but mm -hmm. it's, it's basically an internship for churches in Orlando, the church that my dad was attending in Orlando at the time that was a mega church. And um, my mom looked at me 
my mom and my family, they are all entrepreneurs. They all have businesses. To them, education is paramount. It's the most important thing in the whole entire world. You have got to get an education. So mm. my mom looked at me and was like, yeah, I don't think so. This is what we're going to do. I will pay for you to do anything you want to do. If you go to this one school, it was her school choice because it's, in her opinion, the best school in Colombia, in my opinion, too, because it's my alma mater. Um, <laughs> so she was like, you have to go to this school, which was a private secular school. And you ha you can study whatever you want, but do something that makes sense. You know, like, don't be crazy. And I was like, well, I want to study literature with, uh, with my minor would be biblical studies. Mm. And the, the Bible is studied there as a book of literature, not as a religious book mm -hmm. uh and she was like yeah no that's not what i meant i oh, meant no. more like you want to be a lawyer or something <laughs> like that and i was like fine then i'll study i'll i'll go for an engineering so i did engineering and literature at the same time wow but this was because she would pay for it yeah she, I, she's like i'll pay for it and then she paid for my internship when i moved after i graduated too wow that was that was the deal yeah but my secular school approached the Bible as a literature book. Mm. So every class I took, there were Jewish teachers, there were atheist teachers, there were Christian teachers, there were teachers from all different backgrounds teaching about the Bible as a as a piece of literature. And the the incredible source of understanding sociology through the Bible that we have in this ancient book. Mm. So my experience with the Bible in college set me up for when I moved here. I, I was going to deconstruct at some point with all mm. of that, you mm -hmm. know, like there yeah. was just no way for me. But the reason I got a B was because in my engineering schools, I was miserable and I was taking my third calculus class mm. and I got a B and I wept, even though, you know, and I remember calling my mom be like, I got a B and she's like, so? <laughs> Mom, I got, it's the first time in my life. I went to a bathroom stall and I was weeping. I was like, oh. it's the first time in my life I get a B. I was, I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, honey, who the hell cares? Like, <laughs> <laughs> nobody cares. It's fine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's trauma for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I remember the first, I, the first time I got a C, not the first time I got a B, but the first time I got a C was my freshman year of college and I lost my shit. <laughs> I came, I came completely scared. unglued. And then later I ended up failing a class um, when I was pregnant with one of my kids because I went to college through a couple of pregnancies too. And I was pregnant with one of my kids and I was like, I think I was like seven months pregnant and I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I failed, yeah. I failed one of my classes and I was like, I don't care anymore. That was like, that was a moment for me where I stopped caring. I was like, well, whatever. It brought down my GPA, but... I don't think uh, any job that I try to get is going to look at my GPA. They they are like, oh, do you have a degree? Okay. I know. Yeah. And, I, you know, the more I look at privilege, the more that I'm like, this only matters to us because we don't have privilege, really. Mm. Because those people who have privilege, they don't care about their classes or their A's or B's. They know they're going to get a job. They know they're going to be fine. They know that dad's going to open up room in whatever business he has or whatever his friend's businesses. Mm. So I keep thinking like what kind of trauma, you know, it's, it's so sad that we continue to see our worth and ourselves through the measures of trauma and through the measures of systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. um, I, I told you these over DM, but the teacher asked me like, what are you expecting for your daughter this year in school? And I was like, I just want her to continue to develop their, uh, her social skills and to have yeah. fun. Yeah. 
I generally don't care about what she learned, what she has to learn, mm-hmm. and she'll be fine. But I don't care. We're in the middle of a pandemic too. Like, why am I? Why am I going to be like Antonella? How many books did you read today? I right. don't care. Right. I don't care. Oh. I want her to be well. Yeah. I want us all to be well, mm-hmm. and we will be if we continue to heal. Yeah. So yeah, I I I look back at myself and I'm like I stressed a lot. I got myself sick. Mm. Um, because of systems of oppression telling me that my worth was on things that absolutely say nothing about me. Because mm-hmm. my GPA, your GPA, it communicates absolutely nothing about who you are. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I think there was something about that that you're right. I assigned some level of worth to that because I was told like this is it has says something about how much you're worth as a person and. It's funny because I left school and right. while I wanted to use my degree and I, I enjoyed, I studied linguistics and I love linguistics still and I'd love to go back to school for that. Uh, but when I left school, it didn't matter what my GPA was. I still loved linguistics and I still wanted to use it, but there was I didn't think there was anywhere where I could do that and there was nothing that I could possibly do with it. Um, until a couple of years ago when I um, received some diagnoses that were the result of um, sexual abuse. And I was like, I think that some of the, some of the things that I had been taught about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a biblical woman and a godly woman and all of those things were just, they were reinforcing those past traumas of sexual abuse. Mm. And so I thought, well, I had, and, and everyone keeps telling me this is in the Bible, but then I started to realize, I don't think I ever actually like did the work of studying it myself and translating it myself to right. see, because I know how to do that. Like, that's what my degree is. And I'm supposed to be able to do that. That was what I was going to school for. And so when I sat down and I started in Genesis, cause I thought, well, if there's anything that's gonna tell me what it is to be a woman, it's gonna be Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so I, like you, I started in Genesis and I started reading it in Hebrew and it didn't take long at all. Just like you said, I got like through the first few chapters and I was like, everything is a lie. Everything you taught me, everything that everyone ever told me about being a woman is a lie. Yeah. And it's so much better than what we were taught. And when I finally decided to use my degree, I thought, wow, this is wonderful and beautiful. And I love that I can go back and do something that I love. It's great that I can use this thing that I love that I studied. And who cares that I failed that class? And who cares that I got a D in some classes? It doesn't matter. I learned something that I can still use and that I still think is beautiful. And so it doesn't matter anymore. Um, And it's, it's like this weird capitalistic idea that you have to have like numbers are so important. Your GPA is important. Your salary is important. How much you give to the church is important. You are, you know, the car that you drive is important. All of these things are, how much is your house worth? So strange how, how like the numbers are so important in our society. And how they affect the way in which we relate to one another. Mm -hmm. Because the moment you walk into my house, 
subconsciously you scan it and it informs you of how to treat me, mm. you know, depending mm. on how much work you've done. That's what happens with most people. Yeah. You walk into my home and you scan it. You, you see me walk out of my car and it tells you how to treat me. Mm-hmm. You see the skin that I'm in. You see the way that I'm dressed. You see the way that my children are dressed. Mm-hmm. And it, con- it tells you because you're assigning numbers to my worth yeah. immediately. And, and the dismantling of that and the becoming aware of that and becoming conscious of that is the work that I believe we are invited to mm-hmm. um, as a spiritual work. Yeah. You know, wh- whether you want to call it Christianity or not, I, I generally don't care. Uh, but to me, it is Christianity because of the, the notion of the Christ is what I was talking about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We were thrown in a box. A, a lot of cement is thrown into us. But the one that is underneath the cement is the Christ in us. Mm. And as we chisel our way out and we find that person again, we become aware of who we really are. But that doesn't stop there because we, all, we also become aware of the other. Mm. Um, and we are able to see the other with our true eyes and not the eyes of the cement that was put in front of them mm-hmm. or the eyes of the cement that was put in front of us. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the work of healing and being able to see the divinity in one another. Yeah, and being able to see also the trauma in one another, mm-hmm. which is the cement, the the pain, the indoctrination, the conditioning, yeah. the insecurities. Yeah. So I'm able to, you know, so we're able to heal then and not assign value to things that don't have it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. but go back, and when I say go back, I don't mean at time. I mean go back to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Go back to assigning value to who we are. I, I look at my children and the way they engage with people. They don't, I mean, the eight-year-old is starting to because world, mm-hmm. but the younger they are, they don't assign value to people based on the car they drive or the house they have, or, you know, mm-hmm. they don't assign value based on how they are dressed or they assign value to a person based on the way they are treated by them. Mm-hmm. That's it. You yeah. know, they love people because, oh, I had so much fun with them. Mm. or they did this or we played this game or they chose to play with me Mm -hmm. Uh, but it has nothing to do with anything any of the identities that I call shallow identities you know it Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with whether they are heterosexual or not with whether they are nothing we go to these we go to the um reading hours with drag queen drag queen reading hour Mm. so we used to go but now we do it online Mm -hmm. and so many people have such a big deal with the fact that I take my children to that really and I'm like yeah, a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have a huge, like, they throw a fit. Mm. I'm like, have you ever read to my children? Mm. Have you ever taken an hour of your day to sit down and read to children and make it fun yeah. and and put on all of this makeup and make it just the most, it is the most entertaining. Like, I get lost in the story too. Mm. It's so fun. Mm-hmm. So to my children, drag queens are the coolest people in the world. Yeah. Because they are. Yeah. You know? But all these people saying, like, I can't believe you do that. I'm like, do you read to my children? Leave me up. They want to read to my children. Mm. My children don't assign value to someone because of the makeup they have or what they are wearing. They assign value to them because of how they are treated by them. Mm-hmm. You never engage with them, but judge the ones who do. Yeah. I don't comprehend that. Like, mm. go home. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I just, I read. And that's, uh, that's, I have to do that consciously sometimes too, mm. because I do it unconsciously. I, 
sometimes we look at people and assign some sort of value to them yeah. that is from shallow identities. Mm-hmm. And the work of healing is the work of making that, a, like becoming aware of that, being conscious of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Or my, it, it happens in small places too. Like my daughter will be frustrated and she'll scream at me. And my brain is tells me, you're not raising her right. She was disrespectful to you. Mm-hmm. Don't allow that. Mm-hmm. That's my, that's the training, you know, that's the mm-hmm. indoctrination. That's the, that's the conditioning of my upbringing. That's, that's colonization yeah. in my head. So I have to stop, become aware and say, she's frustrated. I need to know what happened. And we have to have a conversation about how I do not appreciate being yelled at. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it changes in the bigger and smaller ways because I can dehumanize my daughter. Children are the most dehumanized the group people group in the world, in my opinion, mm. I can dehumanize my daughter as much as I can dehumanize, you know, somebody, somebody experiencing homelessness on the streets or um, whoever is in front of me or an undocumented immigrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the ability to dehumanize all of that. And the moment that we think, oh, no, I'm above all of that is the moment that we do it because mm. we're not being aware. Yeah. Yeah. And when you become aware, it, it changes the way that you it changed the way I participate in politics a lot. 100%. I was I was just about to say the same thing. 100%. Yeah. Because then it's not about what is more comfortable for me. It's not about what um, what is going to benefit me the most. Mm-hmm. But it's about the fact that we are a society of people. And I have to become aware of how as a society until the... It's what, the, what Jesus said in a way. Uh, what we do for the least of these, we really do for divinity. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he was talking about like you do it for God, this vision or this imagery of a, a, a man in the sky. Mm-hmm. I think he was talking about what you do for the least of these, you do for the whole of society. Mm-hmm. Because the moment that the, the least of these are well, we will all be well. Because that means that you have stopped dehumanizing. Because yeah. the least of these are the most dehumanized, are the most marginalized, the ones that we've decided are not worth our time. Uh, or our efforts so it should it has to affect our politics because every decision I make as far as politics goes as far as my vote goes as far as what things I support or not support Mm -hmm. the whole time I'm thinking who are the most marginalized Mm -hmm. and how does this vote affect them Mm -hmm. could it could it mean that I have to pay a little bit more taxes probably not because I'm poor but if I weren't could it mean that I have to pay more taxes (laughs) maybe so yeah if I'm rich, who cares? Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, the most, the least of these will be well. And what I do for the least of these, I do for divinity. And divinity means I did it for us mm-hmm. together, collectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, it has changed. Decolonizing and deconstructing my faith yeah. has changed my politics, the way in which I vote, with what, the way in which I engage with others, my parenting, my sexuality, my relationship with my spouse, my my partner um it has changed my relationship with myself and it should yeah so it looks messy it changes because in this house and in my life changing your mind is allowed Mm. it's actually good yeah um it changes but it doesn't it changes because we're moving towards wholeness yeah it doesn't change because what i had before was bad it changes because we're moving toward wholeness Mm -hmm. this notion that if you change your mind, what you had was bad. It's ridiculous. It just means you've evolved past it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And I mean, historically speaking, it, it, 
when it comes to um, things like that and being able to change your mind and and whatever, it seems like that has been it's been really uh, sort of halted as much as possible. Like, let's not change our minds. Let's stay the same. Let's, uh, as I feel like, especially with immigration, like it's this like, stop, no more. We've progressed enough. And no, you can't keep progressing. Like we have to hold the line here as if it's going to like benefit us somehow. Um, but it doesn't seem to really, it, it's, it's nothing. It's not benefiting us any, any, in any way. And it's all, it also goes back to this notion that if white supremacy, which is a system that can be upheld by anybody, mm-hmm. if white supremacy teaches you that you have the final, you know, the supreme, then changing your mind immediately shows that you didn't, which mm-hmm. shows a hole in the system. Holes in the system are not allowed. Mm-hmm. So changing your mind is absolutely intolerable mm-hmm. because you are going to expose the holes. You're going to expose the fact that perhaps we didn't have the final best perfect, most amazing idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps it worked for a minute, but it doesn't work anymore. We didn't have all the information. We have changed. We have evolved as a society together. Yeah. To, to, I, I, I love how American, U.S. Americans talk about the, the, the birth of this nation, you know, and, and hmm. American ex- exceptionalism and how just America was just built right. It was just built right. I mean, who peddled that idea for the, like for crying out loud? Mm-hmm. You know, the, were there good things in it? Absolutely. There were a lot of good things done. Was there a lot of harm? Yes, mm. because not all voices were listened. Yeah. You know, because the voices at the table were very, very, very limited. Mm-hmm. And if you cannot grapple with that and be able to look back at your history, your personal history, your whatever identity that you hold history and say, wow, we made a lot of mistakes and we can do better, then you'll continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again because you refuse to, to look at yourself in a critical manner. Mm-hmm. I People get really angry when I say America, not a lot of people, when I say the U.S. is not the best country in the world. Mm. And I don't understand how you could argue for it, yeah. you know? Because yeah. you've peddled this notion so much that then the same people have an inability to change their mind about anything that happens here. Because if America is, if the U.S., is the best. I keep changing my language from America to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, if the U.S. is the best, yeah. then the U.S. doesn't have to evolve, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is no change that has to be made. All we have to do is keep the, maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. And how has that served the marginalized? It hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. On the next episode, Joe and I continue our conversation on decolonizing faith and politics. You've been listening to 99 Lead Balloons, honest talk about shit society ignores. Special thanks to my guest, Joe Lumen, for joining me. For more of Joe's work, follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Joe Lumen, or support her on Patreon at patreon.com slash Joe Lumen. Links to Joe's social media and Patreon platforms are also available in the liner notes. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company, licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stoke the Wild Studios. To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.